I'm delighted to be joined this morning by Professor Richard Enos. Now, Richard is uh, retired, uh, but is an honorary, uh, has an honorary professoral uh, fellowship at Edinburgh University, having worked at Edinburgh University for many years. Um, Richard was also the first person I saw in Scotland stand up on his hind legs outside Parliament and speak about his concerns regarding COVID, uh, regarding the narrative, regarding the lockdown, regarding the culture of fear, and regarding the absence of any substantial scientific backing for any of it. Um, this took very considerable courage because it was a lonely road in those early days with small crowds and, and a lot of opposition. Um, a lot of people standing in important positions in the government um, making very um, aggressive and, and dismissive comments, um, calling people flat earthers, saying that people were being reckless for even for even associating with one another and going near to one another. And against that background, Richard had the, the courage to stand up. And, uh, well, for that, we'll st if we can start the story there, Richard, um, this was back in 2020. Um, what prompted you to make that stand? Uh, well, it all started actually before the lockdown. Um, I'd had a look at the data about uh, infection fatality rates of um, COVID-19 and uh, it, the age groups which it affected. And it was clear from all the data that it wasn't a threat at all. And um, I actually wrote to the Scottish government before the lockdown started and said, you shouldn't lock down <laughs> the country. And I pointed out that this was a, a policy which had no endpoint. You'd have to you'd have to open up anyway. It wouldn't do any good, and it would cause an incredible amount of harm. <clears throat> and I got a reply back about three months later, say, saying, um, uh, "Stay at home, save the NHS." <clears throat> so uh, I, I was already kind of well primed to <laughs> uh, to start um, protesting against what was happening. Um, I saw something on Twitter which uh, announced that there was going to be a, a rally um, outside. Um, Holyrood, and um, it was smeared by the Scottish government at the time. Uh, but I went down wondering what was going to happen. And there are a lot of reporters there. And um, there was apparently no one who had organized this was there. And I just, uh, <clears throat> and I, th I thought, well, I, I better speak to the reporters. So that's how I got into it. Uh, and uh, there was a, a video that was made about that. Just a very small number of people. And incidentally, at the at that meeting, there was a, a an individual from the BBC, and they very kindly came up and said to me, um, "The only reason I'm here uh, is to produce a report to smear you, and um, <clears throat> the uh, if I don't say anything except that you are too close to other people, um, then uh, that report won't go back to the BBC." So. <clears throat> Uh, I had a distrust of the BBC anyway, but uh, that really certainly reinforced it. It says a lot for it says a lot for that journalist actually to be so honest as that that he he couldn't. Uh, I, I I take it he was all, also um, 
stating he, he couldn't actually repeat or re report on what you actually said. I take it that no. was also out of bounds. Yes, that wasn't uh, that wasn't the purpose of uh, coming down to see the, the the protest. I could see that people were they were really scared. They were you could see how, how scared they were. So subsequent to that, I I took part in a number of rallies. Um, I was really incensed about uh, if you're a, a government and if there is something that's very dangerous there, then your your raison d'être is to reassure the public and. Quite the opposite of that happened, and it was just a, a total propaganda of of fear, <laughs> and and I, you know, I had information coming well, from other people in um, based in medicine, saying, well, we can't tell whether people have got COVID nineteen or not. Uh, these tests don't give us any reliable information from that. And then my wife works in looking after old people and. They, were, they couldn't tell whether an old person had COVID-19 or not. So it's clearly, there was lots of things going on here which were, were completely wrong. If we could explore a little bit more of the fear culture, because it's a few years mm. ago now, and we, we tend to forget, but th there was many aspects to this, because there was a constant drumbeat of scientific scaremongering uh, from the government. Uh, from people like Mr. Leach and uh, Debbie Shridhar, that, that, that this represented an existential threat, that this represented, uh, I mean, the potential for uh, a society devastating, um, uh, culture-changing, mass casualty event. This was, it, was, it was portrayed very much like kind of, the Black Death. This this was the level of fear that was that was being promoted, and then there was the other aspect to it, which was the policing one, which was extremely threatening. So if you stand up and say, "I don't think this is right," then there were many threats. So you, the first time you turned up to speak and there was no organisers, well, I kind of understand that because. The amount of the amount of fear and threat that was being directed against anyone organising was enormous. We were talking, you know, ten thousand pound fines. We're talking about arrest, imprisonment. We were mm. the the amount of aggressive policing that was also backing this up was really was really striking. And you know, you stood up because because the the information you were getting was. That this wasn't real. It wasn't accurate. It was. It didn't reflect the, the reality of the situation. And yet, um, what we saw was essentially every organ of the state obediently line up behind the lie. So there was there was no once the lie was accepted, and it's, it's difficult to actually be quite clear as to who accepted it or when it was accepted. But once it was accepted then media was completely compliant. BBC were basically telling their people, go and get dirt on this person to smear him. We don't, we're not interested in what he has to say. Uh, the, the mainstream press were the same. Um, the, every government department, every government official, there wasn't a word from any official source to challenge the narrative. And the police and the courts and the procurator fiscal service 
they were all busily eliminating our, our rights because, well, the state had said so, and so it must be. So this this strange situation. I mean, what what's your reflection looking back on this now? Of this strange situation where there seemed to be no quality assurance system. There was no check on the narrative actually being correct before everything swung round to force it through and to silence any voices raising concerns. This this, this sort of have you got a handle on the on the, the cultural basis of this or the organizational basis that generated, you know, that effect, that that degree of oppression with uh, you know, based on error. You know, what, what's your, what's your what's your reflection on that? Looking back over two years now. Well, um, inducing fear in a population uh, makes them very plastic, uh, and people will, in those situations, do things that otherwise they would use critical thinking to explore before actually embarking on. I wrote to the people in my department and I said look at this is ridiculous um, uh, <clears throat> the in infection fatality rate is 0.15% uh, or something uh, this is not a serious uh, <laughs> outbreak of, a, of an epidemic and I only got one reply in, in, um, in support and the rest of the replies I got were from a professor, oh no, no, the infection fatality rate is 15%, 15% of people are gonna die. This is a professor at Edinburgh University. Um, <clears throat> I couldn't, this is, I mean, I'm ashamed of academia, uh, absolutely, uh, who've just gone along with, with this and haven't displayed any critical thinking at all. My job at, at the university was to teach students to think critically. Uh, it's really important in your life to think critically in order to protect yourself. And that was just thrown out of the window. I think uh, <clears throat> the attachment of people to um, the mainstream media uh, and not, not thinking for themselves, not having the courage to um, oppose anything that they're told i think that is that's a very worrying thing about society that i think it, uh, is is there at the moment um uh, they've gathered their opinions from that mainstream media they think within the bounds that that uh, <clears throat> media allows and they don't think outside those bounds and if anyone thinks outside that then it's dangerous. They, they're fearful of that. They're fearful of people who think outside those limits. And that's why they call people conspiracy theorists and why they want safety uh, and they think they can get safety by following what they're told. Uh, <clears throat> I guess that's my, my feeling about it. It was striking that um, the, the general the general belief was that compliance represented virtue. Mm. And yeah. you mentioned courage, this is critical. You know, the, the, the view that, that we quickly developed in, in, in the UK column is compliance represented cowardice. 
mm. either intellectual cowardice because you didn't want to know what the truth was, or mm. actual cowardice because you simply wouldn't stand up for something you knew to be correct. Um, I think in most cases it was the former, but there was a there was a huge intellectual cowardice, and you, you've described it as, as as permeating academia, and it, sure it did. Um, the infection fatality rate was one of the first clues that something was seriously amiss. And that, and at the time, the all-cause mortality rate, because I, I remember when the, when the drumbeat of fear started, the all-cause mortality was actually below normal, and, yes. and stubbornly so, despite, despite yeah. uh, the, the, the fear being generated. And we were reporting on this weekly in, on the column at the time. Now, that didn't last, and there was a spike in, 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 in all-cause uh, mortality due to the um, policies regarding the elderly and re regarding care homes. So I think that was the next part of the story, which was the government response and the effect it had. If you could sort of outline your views on, on that, on, on the initial response with respect to care homes, with respect to the NHS essentially closing down, um, there was all these temporary hospitals that were built and not used. There was a, a lot of um, strange behaviour in the healthcare sector. And, and I, I put it to a, a senior consultant in NHS Scotland at one point, as far as I could tell, there was panic because they kind of took 150 years of hard-won technical expertise about how to care for people and threw it away and decided, well, this is an entirely new situation. We're going to have to make things up as we go along. And then you start to get very strange methods of treating people, very harmful incubation and um, how they were being handled and why, they were being, why, why uh, unwell people were being treated in certain ways seemed to be seemed to fly in the face of everything we'd learned in the previous century and more. So, yeah. yes, if you, if you could sort of outline your thoughts on that area, the, the initial healthcare response, what did, what did you make of that? Yeah, well, the initial healthcare response was to move people from hospitals um, where they were looked after by nursing staff um, into care homes uh, and somehow in order to free up the hospitals. Um, they weren't tested beforehand uh, to see whether they had this dreaded disease, COVID. <clears throat> and when they were put into the um, care homes, they were put into a situation where they were not, there weren't adequate people to look after them. And uh, I was in contact with a number of nurses at that time. They were in tears. Um, <clears throat> they'd gone into care homes and they'd seen people there who um, they died because <clears throat> they just hadn't been uh, given food and water basically. And then people were not even allowed to go and see them. There were, uh, if you're thinking about people in a care home, many of those people uh, rely on their relatives in order to um, give them a meaning to life, um, giving them a, uh, <clears throat> supplementing their, their food if that's necessary, but at least being their company and their stimulation for life. And all of that was removed and is um, completely abhorrent. Um, uh, <clears throat> inhuman treatment of, of people and uh, we're supposed to have NHS is always supposed to be a kind of a caring organization people clapping for them they're supposed to be caring for people they weren't caring for people at all they put these 
elderly people into situations uh, where they lost hope and they died. And I still remember uh, a video <clears throat> of um, a lady who was in a, in a care home and uh, her husband had come along. He was not allowed to visit. He was standing outside the care home and he was, he was singing to her. And I just thought, <laughs> how, how can you treat human beings in that manner? It's absolutely despicable. So, <clears throat> no, that's, that's, that's my attitude to, to this, that as an organization, the NHS was completely inhuman um, and uh, people died uh, neglected. They, they died <clears throat> without the care of their, um, their loved ones around them. So clearly that response was utterly wrong. And uh, as you say, there were lots of medical treatments which were imposed as a result of uh, various procedures that the NHS had instituted, which uh, I think as the UK column has um, from the very beginning said, from the very beginning that those um, treatments which were provided to those patients probably um, contributed to the uh, huge spike in, in deaths at that particular time at a, at a period when you wouldn't expect a respiratory disease to be particularly serious at the end of the, the end of the spring beginning of the summer so um, and, at a later and, stage and, and my own father died um, uh, and he was in a he was in the hospital um, he uh, at that time the restrictions had been uh, relaxed, but <clears throat> my father died of uh, uh, heart failure. And when I looked at the certificate, he, he, he was supposed to have tested positive two days before he died for COVID-19. And when I look at the death certificate, the main cause of death was put down as COVID-19. It's absolute nonsense. And that's what was going on all the time um, during that period of time. And that's how you can generate a huge spike in COVID-19 deaths, fairly obvious. Yeah, this brings us to the, both, the, both the data and, and the testing. So the next thing that started to become clear as this developed was the, the sleight of hand that, that was generating the case-demic, because we had, after this initial spike in deaths, um, it, it fell away very rapidly to zero at one point in Scotland. Um, mm. But there was still um, a steady uh, alert from the media and from the government. And this, a lot of this was generated on, on case numbers. And the case numbers were generated by testing, not from symptoms. So the, the whole definition of being a case, of, a, of having a disease, had, had been moved to testing positive with a PCR test or lateral flow test and not to actually having symptoms and being ill. Um, no. And this was generating a huge amount of fear. So the masking mandates came in and this was all based on the, the, the idea that you could be asymptomatic and yet spreading carnage as you went. Um, mm. I, had a, I, had a, I had a very um, interesting exchange in a shop one day as a, a customer was objecting to my non-mask wearing. And he's a big lad and he clearly wanted to um, chin me. But I pointed out that he wasn't allowed within two metres 
and and he could see the, the sort of cognitive dissonance as he realised that yeah. he couldn't actually get, get close enough to punch me because he would be breaking the, his own COVID rules. But the, the, the amount of angst in the public was very clearly heightened, and yet this mm. was not being based on any, at this, people, at this point, people dying, but it was being based on the testing and the case numbers. So again, that was perhaps the next aspect of it, the, the, the case-demic and the nature and pro problems with the testing and with the data. Um, yeah. So, so what, what is your view concerning that, looking back now at the PCR lateral flow and, uh, and, the, and the, the assembly of statistics concerning how many people were actually coming down with COVID? Yeah, well, I... Uh, I mean, I worked on um, using PCR tests in my research, uh, and I know that um, if you run a PCR test for long enough, you can detect anything. Uh, and <clears throat> I also think about disease perhaps differently from the way in which doctors think about diseases, uh, which I think is completely antiquated. Um, I come from the viewpoint of um, ecology and uh, we know that many disease-causing organisms are around all the time. We have them around us all the time. Uh, they don't cause disease. Our body fights them off. They have to compete against loads of other organisms in the human body. Uh, and it's only under exceptional circumstances that one of those disease-causing organisms gets the upper hand and we go down with the disease. So just the presence of any particular organism in a, in a in an individual, maybe there at an incredibly low level, you can detect it at an incredibly low level using PCR. It doesn't mean in any way that you are sick with that disease. Uh, it's a complete uh, misunderstanding of um, the ecology of disease. And <clears throat> any, well, if that kind of thinking was properly integrated into, into medicine, then people would have quite different views. Uh, about the use or abuse of um, PCR tests or any other of these kind of tests. Um, the inventor of the PCR test indicated that it was completely the wrong way to um, go about. It might be useful if you're not, if somebody's ill and you want to know what's causing that illness, then um, it, it may be a way of eliminating some things and, and um, putting into prominence various other things. And, that, and that's, that's, that's a useful way of doing it. But you don't do it by testing asymptomatic people um, and, and saying that they're ill. Um, clearly, they're not ill and they're not spreading things. <clears throat> and the other, I guess the other, the naivety of the models that people use for understanding disease is incredible to me. Because these airborne diseases, they're going to get around very easily. Uh, you're not going to stop them. And to try and put in place measures to, to stop them is, is silly. <laughs> you need to be thinking about, well, how do we make sure that people are uh, healthy enough in the first place that they won't succumb to these diseases? And that's the way to treat, uh, uh, to treat these things. So uh, that's my take on it. I mean, during this testing process, uh, the, the rules changed. Uh, you used to be, at one point in the PCR test, you needed to have three positive genes. 
uh, and then uh, both a number of periods in which people were counted as cases when there two or even just one of those genes came up positive and all of the PCR tests were being run at 40 cycles. Um, this is something which um, you exponentially um, <clears throat> expanding the number of uh, bits of DNA that you're looking at. And the more, more cycles that you run, you can test something, you can find something that's absolutely minuscule um, uh, proportion uh, presence in, in, in an organism. So it, they were being used in a completely in, inappropriate way anyway, even if you were, you were using them for a diagnostic process. So yeah, all of that yes. was, so, was wrong. Yeah, I mean, you, you're speaking there to the, you know, the naivety of models. Now, the mathematical modeling problem, obviously, was, was key from the very get-go, yeah. where, where you had Neil Ferguson and uh, um, um, his stochastic, meaning random, um, computer model generating some information and um, without any clarity as to what this meant. And it was believed to, to, to just an extraordinary degree. So the, the idea of um, academic plus computer seemed to be the new definition of truth. And we seem to have forgotten what Alfred North Whitehead taught us about the, the fallacy of misplaced concreteness, of confusing a model with the reality it's trying to describe. And, and this, you, you used the word naivety naivety this this scientific naivety and um the degree to which previous errors in understanding disease for example in understanding statistics in understanding um risk it really started to hurt us because it would it would appear that rather than having an informed educated populace and an informed, educated leadership at political level, we had people instead who could only follow expert advice. They could only follow. They had no means of forming an independent view for themselves, which meant mm -hmm. there was no checking, there was no challenging of the narrative. Everything was just accepted, and on we went. Um, and where we went was, of course, to vaccines. You know, the, the, the great saviour was going to be vaccines. We are going to rush through vaccines. And then we discovered that, that the vaccines didn't mean vaccines because they meant something else. Um, that they'd actually changed the definition of vaccine to, be, to, to allow gene therapy to be called a vaccine. And with mm -hmm. this new technology that was being rushed through, but oh, we were assured it was, it was safe and effective. And then we started to see the data what did you see at that point, and and uh, what was your views of in the early days of the vaccine rollout? Well, I guess in the, uh, I initially looked at um, what the vaccines how they how they operated, and um, if you think about what a traditional vaccine does, you take a rather innocuous part of uh, an organism or a dead organism, and you inject it, and uh, that stimulates uh, a response, which means that when you actually see the real thing, then you're able to deal with it without too many problems. Um, so what you want is a, an innocuous bit of whatever it is you want to inject. 
Uh, and if you have a look at <clears throat> the bit of the um, virus that was chosen to be injected uh, to be, and, and to replicate within the human body, it was the most dangerous part of that virus. <clears throat> and there were many studies that had a look at, even before the vaccines were, were released, at the um, sequence of the uh, uh, spike protein, um, the proteins which it would um, interact with and uh, things that would go, would probably go wrong as a consequence of having an awful lot of this particular spike protein in the human body. Uh, and people could do that from first principles because they knew enough about um, uh, protein structure and, and, and uh, the toxicity of these particular <clears throat> uh, proteins that they could predict that there was going to be problems. So before even the first person was injected, you could see that there were going to be problems in the future. And people have already had experience with this um, kind of technology in, in animals and um, uh, <clears throat> antibody dependent uh, enhancement is one of the problems which was foreseen before. Uh, people had actually written some papers talking about how dangerous it's likely to be and the possible dangers. So it was clear from just from reading the literature around that topic that these things were not going to be um, uh, safe. Uh, so I, I, from the very beginning, I've been against that, uh, this kind of technology. It, and it's really strange that what this is is effectively genetic engineering. Uh, either it's a genetically engineered virus from a chimpanzee uh, that's being injected into people or it's a um, piece of uh, genetic material which has been highly genetically engineered um, and in fact has the basis of the DNA of the RNA replaced by a, a completely novel base so that it doesn't degrade very quickly and stays around and hangs around in the body for as long as possible uh, it's clear and yet people this is all genetic engineering, and there's been a huge push against genetically engineered crops. But somehow it was okay to have injected into you uh, genetically engineered organisms or genetically engineered um, uh, RNA, uh, which um, codes for a toxic protein. And the other thing that's important to understand is that um, if you want to. Um, protect yourself from a respiratory disease, then the place where the interaction takes place is not in the blood. Um, it's at the barrier between um, the airways and, <clears throat> uh, and the inside of the body. And, and that's where you need to generate a, a, um, a response. And what you're doing with injecting into people's muscles and eventually that uh, injection going into, into the uh, into the bloodstream is is a, a response in blood and it's it's not going to protect you it's not going to protect you from catching that disease and, and and indeed that's what we find it doesn't protect you from catching whatever this virus is I, I, you know I very quickly after the rollout we, we were detecting really alarming signs um there was the spike in death rates amongst the elderly in Scotland, where they doubled, and this aligned exactly with the vaccine rollout program. It, it lined up perfectly. So each cohort 
was suffering a spike in deaths as the vaccine was 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 rolled out, and that that was an, a pretty immediate response two to three weeks after the vaccine was was administered, and then we started to see strokes, we started to see cardiac problems, we started to see Guillain-Barré syndrome, paralysis, many, many effects, a lot to do with the circulatory system, clots, and this was being flagged up with all of the monitoring systems that were put in place to flag up problems with pharmaceuticals, the VAERS system in America, the yellow card system in, the, in Britain. So the UK column were reporting on this. We got banned quite a lot. We got thrown off of YouTube for putting out a, a story of, of a woman whose husband was left paralysed by the vaccine. And uh, I got thrown off Twitter for tweeting out government statistics on uh, vaccine harms. So there was a huge state pushback against this. But this, this, the information from the data the story that was coming from the data was way beyond the system blinking red. You know, we were seeing a level of harm, a level of death, a level of serious injury that dwarfed all of the previous vaccine health concerns. But by orders of magnitude, it was, it was huge, and yet it was ignored, or at least in the mainstream media, it's coming in now. But for a good year and more, um, there, was, there was almost not a word said Vaccine harms were just never mentioned. Um, no. They weren't mentioned by the state, and they, and they weren't mentioned by the medical profession when they were informing their clients as to the risks and benefits of the vaccine. So informed consent was undermined. Um, so this, this formed a big part of the UK column reporting for a very considerable time, and, and still does, because the problem's very much ongoing. Um, what what is what is your view of, of of how that story developed and what the data shows? Uh, well, as you say, um, the yellow card reporting system shows incredible numbers of of, of deaths, uh, lots and lots of um, side effects. I mean, people have tried to belittle it by saying, "Well, oh, anyone can um, put in one of these," uh, you know, and, and it's being biased, but. <clears throat> If you saw what effort it requires uh, to put in one of these reports, uh, I went through the yellow card system myself to have a look at what was necessary. And uh, you need to be fairly well trained in, um, in medicine in order to be actually file one of these reports. And you have to do this, um, you know, in your, in your own time. Uh, and there's an no incredible disincentive actually to make any sort of a report, even if you know that somebody has died from this. So I uh, clearly that those data are, are really important. I put in a freedom of information request uh, <clears throat> to ask um, for more information about the yellow card data. The reports that you get from it um, hide most of the information that goes into it. So we don't have reports by uh, age. We don't have reports by uh, sex. We can't do any proper analysis as um, scientists on those data. <clears throat> but when I put in a freedom of information request, ask where that data went and could we um, access it um, as, as long as it was uh, the identity of the people concerned was um, removed, they said that was impossible. 
However, as a matter of routine, those data are sent directly to the um, vaccine manufacturers, and that's what the, that's what I was told. So we are denied the information that we require to analyze properly the data, uh, and yet it goes straight to the um, vaccine manufacturers. So clearly there's something very, very wrong there. I also ask for um, reports of some scientific analysis that they'd done on those data. Those were not forthcoming. They said it was too much work to um, give us any scientific analyses that they'd done using those data. Um, so the uh, MHRA are clearly not actually making use of those data to find out what's going on and, and, and to analyze those data properly to protect the public. Um, that's my that's my take, and it's uh, kind of shocking, but uh, I, perhaps it's not so shocking when I see all of the other things that are going on at the moment. <clears throat> yeah, I, I, and to just to look at the data a little bit more, talk a little bit more about the data, the, the, the analysis required to show problems is, is not, it's not rocket that science. huge. It's not rocket science. I mean, one, one um one graph that I, I, I spotted someone and prepared, it graphed the cumulative death toll amongst, I think it was men in England aged 18 to 41 or something like that. Um, and it, 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 it was a sum total of all the deaths in that category in England over time. And not surprisingly, the, the graph was a line. As you know, cumulative, it was, it was going up at a, at a, at a, at a set rate. And then that line bent and went up at a steeper rate and maintained at that steeper rate. So there was clearly at, at that point an increase in the in the mortality in that normally very healthy age group. And that that kink in the line was two weeks after the introduction of vaccines to that age group. Hmm. Right? You, there are many, many signs in the data. Just before we move on to other things. It, it, it saw specific things from the data that stood out from you that, that, that said, well, that's, that's a concern, that's a smoking gun, that's really clear. Yes, well, um, the best data that we have, what I would call the honest data, the data that cannot be easily manipulated is all-cause deaths. Uh, and uh, you've given me an intro to that. Um, so what we can do is have a look at um, excess mortality uh, as we go through 2020. 2021 and 2022. Um, <clears throat> after the um, we, there was excess mortality at the time when in 2020, when as I we discussed earlier, um, older people were being uh, neglected in care homes. <clears throat> in the summer of 2020, when there was supposed to be COVID around, actually we didn't have any excess mortality in the summer of 2020. Um, excess mortality took off again in the immediate aftermath of the rollout of the, uh, of the vaccines in December 2021. And then a second uh, increase in excess mortality took place in uh, summer of 2021, last year. And that came and started in about April 2021. And it was really very significant and continued for the whole of the summer, right up until December of 2021. And it occurred in a particular fashion. So the first increases in mortality took place in the most elderly. And then the increases in mortality 
came about successively in younger and younger age groups. And this exactly mirrored the um, rollout of the vaccines to younger and younger age groups. So <clears throat> one hypothesis might therefore be that uh, what's happening is that uh, actually this is a, <clears throat> a clear indication that the <clears throat> uh, vaccine rollout is causing these spikes in mortality and the it takes maybe three or four months before the most serious effects are, are seen and the most deaths occur because a lot of the damage caused by um, the vaccines is likely to be cumulative uh, and people don't actually die until they uh, maybe they've got huge blood clots or uh, <clears throat> and it, that's sufficiently um, serious that it causes ultimately a death. So that's what we saw now. You could put forward two hypotheses as to why this might be happening. Well, maybe it's because uh, this uh, timing of the deaths is caused by the fact that um, we've stopped essentially uh, a lot of the um, NHS services. People have been too scared to go into hospitals. So the elderly are the most vulnerable. Um, well, maybe they die first because um, you're the most vulnerable to not having uh, care and exist goes to uh, successively younger age groups uh, uh, as we proceed. So that's one hypothesis. The second hypothesis is actually that it's due to the vaccines. And that would make a prediction that if you roll out the boosters um, at a later stage, you should see uh, the same spiking in um, mortality uh, in a uh, age uh, structured fashion. And what did we see after the boosters were um, <coughs> Uh, administered, we again saw, first of all, there was little excess mortality in January 2022, but going into um, February, um, week 10 or so, we saw that there was a spike in mortality of first the older age groups, then the um, next youngest age groups, and so on. Um, exactly what you would expect um, if this was a, a vaccine effect. And in, in a way, you could um, regard that as, a, as an experiment. Uh, we are being experimented on with these vaccines, their experimental um, treatments. Um, and this is an experiment. Um, it's been uh, conducted and the outcome supports the hypothesis that uh, the spike in deaths is caused by um, vaccines. And the, the spike has been, I mean, it's, this is Scottish data. In Scotland, the number that's over 4,000 excess deaths in 2021, and we're up to 300, three, more than 3,000 excess deaths in 2022 now. Um, uh, and these, as I say, didn't happen in the summer of um, 2020 when we were supposed to be in the middle of a COVID um, epidemic. So, those data, I think, are very telling. Um, we, there's been an attempt in the mainstream media to say that all of these excess deaths are due to merely to the effects of the adverse effects of, of lockdowns. And the Scottish government, indeed, have tried to, to say that. They had a COVID recovery committee which was set up to look at the excess deaths in 2021. Uh, they asked for the public 
to provide their views on this. And I had a look at the responses that the public gave to the Scottish government. And about 38% of their responses mentioned the fact that uh, excess deaths was probably related to the vaccines. When the report on <coughs> this um, uh, recovery committee was sent to Hamza um, Yusuf, um, there was absolutely no mention at all of the possibility that vaccines could be responsible for excess deaths. Not, there wasn't a single word in there about it, despite the fact that they had been prompted to have a look at this by the general public, who had been asked by the Scottish Government to <clears throat> provide their views on this topic. So it's complete, as you, you can see there, the absolute um, ignorance of <clears throat> anything that's coming from the people who the government is supposed to help and represent. Now, one of the things that I've noticed over this period, um, and I, I think I called this actually before the end of 2021, is the government's narrative has collapsed. So the narrative was that uh, COVID is enormously threatening, massively harmful, with a very high fatality rate, and we, we have essentially no defence against it other than lockdowns, masking, and the great saviour will be vaccines. That was the narrative. Um, that has been scientifically, using data, comprehensively demolished. The um, points you raised on the infection fatality rate being hugely smaller, particularly amongst the young, but it's basically zero. Um, the problems of testing and the um, unreliability of the government data on on the size of the epidemic, then the, then the information, the vast mountain of information on vaccine harms and the vast mountain of information on excess mortality following the vaccine programme. And, and also, even the government now is admitting that the lockdowns either didn't work or were harmful, and the masking doesn't work, although there still seems to be an attempt to maintain the narrative there. But essentially, the government case has collapsed, yeah. intellectually, factually. They they don't have a they don't have a position that's that's any longer defensible. Now the mainstream media have largely hidden that from the public, and the politicians have largely ignored it, to their eternal shame, I would say. And very few, with one of two, with one or two noticeable exceptions. Uh, very few are actually speaking out about the truth about this. But nonetheless, the narrative has collapsed. Are you seeing any movement by the state, by the authorities, by the NHS? Or what movements are you seeing that, that are reflecting the collapse of their position intellectually um, with the data and information we now have to hand? Are they actually moving albeit too late and very slowly, are they moving in the right direction or are they still resisting? I, can't, I haven't seen very much evidence that they have actually been moving for them from their position. Uh, my mother-in-law is in a care home um, uh, and up until last week, 
if I wanted to go and see her, I, I had to wear a mask. Um, when I've been into a hospital in recent times, they still have um, uh, masking as um, the norm. And uh, if you don't have wear a mask, then you know, you know you're somehow different from. It. And, that, and that's taken. That's still in in GP surgeries as well. And uh, I was supposed to, to see my mother-in-law. Um, I was supposed to take a COVID test. So uh, in those particular areas, um, they seem to be somehow um, <clears throat> it's very much more dangerous um, to go to uh, anything that's to do with the NHS uh, or anything where, where care is involved. So they don't, don't seem to be um, uh, moving on those fronts. And there's an absolute resistance to admitting that uh, there's any any vaccine deaths. And you know, I think uh, we've got the, the, the compens compensation scheme. People have actually been awarded uh, money from the compensation scheme to show that there is such a thing as vaccine deaths, but it's supposed to be so, so rare. Um, no, I don't. There are alternative news channels which will tell you that it's a very serious problem. But other than that, most people seem to be have been completely. Um, the, the information has been completely withheld from them, and there hasn't been a, a change in the government's outlook. And I, I mean, I, I have colleagues uh, got an email this morning. Oh, I've got COVID. I've got to. Um, I've, I've got a positive COVID test. I'm, I won't be able to see you for another week. I can't understand how people are so <laughs> blind to what's really going on, yeah. and it and it's it's supported by institutions. Um, it, it seems to be that if you're part of an institution of any kind, then you give away your freedom. You give away your right uh, to critically think about anything. And if you're an institution, we are governed in such a top-down manner that anyone who thinks for themselves and decides that uh, what they want to do is different from what the person at the top of that particular institution thinks should be done, uh, well, that person, um, they're, they're going to be vilified. And I think it largely a part of the problem is that such a hierarchical way in which we have things organized that and that people at the power have so at the top has so much power uh to uh, inflict things on people's personal lives uh which is absolutely none of their business uh and uh taking away their their freedom you join an institution you give away your freedom that's what i'm starting to to, to think uh, at the moment yeah, it's a good point. And, and of course, the institutions are all coordinated and, generally speaking, funded from one source. And therefore, there's no, there's no opposition even between institutions. It's not just within them, mm. but it's all one large organisation. We saw this in the, the, the no-to-name person fight. The, 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 charitable, the charitable sector was, again, with a very small number of noticeable exceptions, completely on board. But, you know, it, it encouraged to think themselves part of the development of this horrendous policy. And there wasn't a word raised in opposition until the people got a hold of it. And they, they raised the opposition. They said, we're not having this. But the institutional failure was almost complete. It was, yeah. it was striking.
<clears throat> if we could finish um, on a on a personal note, you've obviously stood up. You you know other people who are who are thinking the same way that you that you are, um, but are maybe unable to publicly speak out. What's the position as, as you see it for dissidents in the UK? In or in this case, in, a, in the medical field, in being able to speak out, what pressures, smears, um, you know, what what forces have been brought to bear to, to silence people? You know, what's the what barriers are there to telling the truth in Britain? Well, I guess I know I know people who who are in the the NHS um, and share the same views as myself. They are unable to speak out because. Basically, they will be hauled up before the General Medical Council uh, and they will be um, vilified there. And <clears throat> they may well lose their job. They can't afford to do that. They've got uh, people who are depending on them. Uh, and they will be, the, the pressures on them are, are, are really tremendous. They're, then, <clears throat> Actually, the the attitudes of their colleagues as well is uh, very very unhelpful for those people who are going along with the the narrative. I think they're so scared that it, it could that they may be wrong that uh, they like to join together with other people of like mind. And um, the pressure that's put on those people who don't conform is uh, absolutely um, enormous. Um, uh, and that, that, that's extremely difficult. And, <clears throat> I mean, a number of people, it, it leads people to actually resign their jobs. Uh, and uh, I know quite a few nurses have resigned their jobs as a consequence of uh, the pressures that they have been put under. So it's, um, there is a general love of conformity, I think. Um, I see that especially in Edinburgh. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> people, there's a there's a huge social pressure, as well as a pressure at work, uh, not to rock the boat, not to not to be different from any, uh, anyone else. Um, uh, and I don't know. I don't know. It comes from. I just feel it comes from a narrowness of outlook, a, a lack of willingness to look outside. It's to me. It's to me. It's quite debilitating, actually. Um, in the, people are missing out on so much wonderful thing about or the wonderful things about life because they're only prepared to think within certain bounds and uh, they don't want other people to think outside those bounds and they're scared of those people so I think there's a tremendous social pressure as well as the pressure that comes from the institutions um, you don't want to be seen to be different that's that's very sad to me because uh, I think the, <clears throat> the beauty of humanity is that people are all different and they all think different things and they all, uh, and uh, I don't know, that's a, that's a tremendous thing about life for me. And you can learn so much from opening your mind to hear about what other people think. And, and you've done this, you've, you've rocked the boat. You've stood up and you said things unpopular in, 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 in the circles of the mighty. Um, and you've done so for two years, and you're still standing. Um, 
And it's, it's not quite the right question to say, have you enjoyed it? But what's your, what's your personal reflection on, on that journey? Is it, it, is it one that you, yeah. is it one that you value? Is it one that you look at with, with pleasure, with satisfaction? You know, or is it one where you think, well, that was traumatic? How, how do you view your own personal journey through the last two years, three years? Well, I, I, I've been lucky because I'm retired and so I don't have that pressure coming from um, employers and, and I don't have to go out and, uh, and make sure that I earn a living. So I feel very privileged person and I, I feel <clears throat> it's my duty to stand up and say what's right. Um, <clears throat> on, the, on the one hand, um, uh, I've, I've, I, I, uh, I had to resign from my orchestra because I wasn't... Um, because I stood up against uh, the members of the orchestra wanted to bring in a policy where it was expected that you got vaccinated uh, and uh, <clears throat> and they didn't want to be in the presence of an unvaccinated person, especially one who was playing a flute. Um, <clears throat> so uh, I'm, I no longer play in my orchestra. Uh, so it's had, uh, I've had, had arguments with my wife, but that's fine now. Uh, my daughters told me that I was, they were, they thought I was going around the bend, um, uh, and they were disgusted with me for talking about, um, the, uh, uh Scottish government, um, sex education, um, uh, of, of school children, uh, and the, and and the things which are advocated there and which taking away the um innocence of children so uh but i've kind of come back they come back on board i don't think they're on board with me but anyway they they they, they accept that i have my my own opinions about those things so those things have all been kind of downs on the other hand wow i've met some fantastic people and i've met people from all walks of life and uh, it's been really um really stimulating and uh you i think i, I lived for 65 years and there's a whole load of things that i was just completely blind to and now everything's been opened up and it's it's great and uh so well that's life isn't it um i think uh it's um <clears throat> i wish all of these things hadn't happened uh all of these these things hadn't happened but um uh i'm i'm happy with the way that um i responded to it well this is it we 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 find this the uk column that you stand up on these issues uh you do lose a lot of friends but you get much better yeah. ones in return so yeah, yeah uh, I agree. uh richard thank you Thank Regulino, thank you very much for talking to me today. It's been a real pleasure talking to you. Um, I thank you for all the work that you've done and continue to do. And uh, we hope to talk to you again at some future time. Till then, thank you.